0: Just sit right back
1: and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip That started from this topic. Boy, a boy,
0: this tiny ship It started from a port in Western Australia. Now this week's guest is on track to break a record and create history. There's no tropical islands in this story, but it's bound to inspire you to chase your dreams. Join the crew of the USS Mojo Radio Show as we go live to the Southern Ocean to find out what this inspirational lady is up to. Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound. It's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working. But it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and and your personal life.
2: Hey everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Now I know I say a lot, however, this week is rather special because for the very first time we're going live and we are talking to somebody from the middle of the Antarctic Ocean. This girl is sailing around, basically around the world, and we've got her live from a satellite phone. Extraordinary story that I have got. I've got the backstory. But we're going to go live with her on the show. So it actually is a special Mojo Radio Show edition. For those joining us for the very first time, welcome. Thanks for hitting the download button. Robbo and I, he's the guy sitting next to me here. Guy with the skipper's cap on. <laughs> uh, you look a bit like the skipper, actually. <laughs> we uh, we just find people that we find interesting, fascinating, inspiring. We talk to them, steal their stuff that can help us get our mojo working in or out of work. And this week, I'm sure, is going to be
1: no different. Robo, uh, Captain, Skipper, <laughs> welcome to the show, mate. Mate, if you're not going to say it, I am world first.
2: It is, I got to say, I am. Pretty stoked about this. Uh, Let me set it up for you folks because we're going to get straight into it because we are going live and we are in the hands of the sat phone today. Mm. We are talking to a young lady called Lisa Blair who's 32 years old. She's a sailor and an adventurer. And Lisa is currently sailing through the Antarctic Ocean in an attempt to circumnavigate the Antarctica solo and unassisted. Now, this circumnavigation is expected to take three months. We are finding Lisa in the ocean about three months into it. What's fascinating about this is that Lisa, in her journey, she left Perth, And she's going, it's unaided, you can't go to land, you can't get any assistance, and you can't actually meet or have any conversations or personal contact with anybody. So she is out there in some of the most dangerous waters in the world on her lonesome. It's an extraordinary story and she's hoping to be the first woman to do it and ideally only the third person in history to have done it. So is our technology going to work today, Robo?
1: Yeah, I think the iPhone's holding up, mate. Let's see how we go. Hi. Hey, Lisa, it's Robo and Gary. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you.
2: Now, we, this is our first time ever talking to somebody on a satellite phone from the middle of the ocean. Uh, Can you describe to us exactly where you are at this moment?
3: Yeah, sure. I am in the Southern Ocean, so I am at something called 55 degrees south, um, which is basically the middle of nowhere. I'm about 800 miles off the coast of Chile and um, and 2,500 miles from New Zealand, so uh, just yeah, a little dot in the ocean. Now, you...
2: Just tell us about your adventure. We, we, we know where you are right now. You're in the middle of a true adventure. Describe to us exactly what your intention is.
3: Yes. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm currently circumnavigating Antarctica with the goal of becoming the first woman ever to have done so. And also the secondary goal of trying to set a new speed record, basically break an end record as well.
2: Now, I, I know the all-time record is held by Russian Fedor. Konyakov, who is, I've got to say up front, is a very big fan of the Mojo Radio Show. Uh, <laughs> We're always getting calls from Fedor. We call him the Fedorinator. He uh, is always calling us uh, to say, What's good, A in Russian? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, Jesus,
1: don't go there. <laughs> but I, I think was actually also one of the first men in space, wasn't he, that guy? no not
3: not at all not yet he's um he just set the hot air balloon record for hot air ballooning around the world has he really yeah yeah he just did Australia Australia a couple months back you need to speak to him as well
1: (laughs) and he makes a very nice hat
2: old fedor (laughs) fedor konyakov now that record was (laughs) that record was set in (laughs) koshnyakov i need more vodka um The record was set in 2008, so all 10 years ago. Tell us, at this point, how are you going against that record?
3: Yeah, well, I'm actually matching him um, pretty well at the moment. Um, Basically, he took less time getting to Cape Horn's, like, our halfway mark. Um, So he took less time getting to Cape Horn than he did on the second part of the trip. He actually had an extra sort of week and a half on the second part of the trip. So I'm still on track for the record. Um, Once I passed Cape Horn in a couple of days... Uh, Then it's just a homework stretch, and I was sailing really conservative to start with, and I sort of eased up and opened the throttle a little bit more. Um, So, yeah, I'm in with a really good shot at the moment.
2: Now, I was speaking to Fedor, it must have been last week, he rang me, and uh, we were talking about your venture here, Lisa, and he said that Cape Horn – really is quite a monumental achievement to go around Cape Horn. You're only a couple of days away. He, Fedor described it as being the Everest of sailing and he was very specific in describing exactly how hard it is. Tell me about Cape Horn, what your expectations yeah. are and why why is it the Everest of sailing?
3: Yeah, well, um, it's basically the, it's, it's the most dangerous part of the ocean in the world. It claims the most souls. Um, at sea, and uh, the reason for that is basically you've got the coast of Chile comes down and you've got the Antarctic Peninsula comes up, but then you've got all this weather pattern and swell that's wrapping around the bottom of the world and just looping around the bottom there in the Southern Ocean, and all of that compresses and has to go through that small gap between Chile and and, um, the Antarctic Peninsula, so it's all compressing, you get hugely strong winds, and then on top of that you hit shallow water. So if you imagine a 30-foot wave in the middle of the ocean over five-kilometre deep water, that's, like, not much. But when you get to the shore and you're in 50 metres of water in a 30-foot wave, it's a very, very different scenario. Mm. So all that southern ocean swell, which is huge, and is constantly looping there, hits that shallow water and just peaks straight up and you get really dangerous sea states.
1: I'm just going to put this out there. When I was younger, we had a catamaran and we, we had a holiday house on a lake. And I used to go sailing and I remember one time I was sailing and you, and I capsized the catamaran and the mast stuck in the mud and I couldn't tip it back up, right? I was 13 years old and crapping myself. How do you deal with the fear of what could happen in the, I mean, I was in the middle of a lake. I wasn't that far away from rescue. You're in the Mate, middle of the ocean,
2: Don't don't trivialise what what Lisa's doing here. I'm I'm, not. I was building tension. I was going somewhere with this, and you bring in a catamaran when you're... Come on.
1: I want to know how Lisa deals with the fear because I would be absolutely cleaning my pants every five minutes if I was in your situation. How do, how do you deal with that, being in the middle of nowhere thinking, well, if something goes wrong here, I've got absolutely no help of it, no chance of help?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there is a chance of help. There are some, there's Urishwai and stuff around there, and there are some vessels passing down to Antarctica Peninsula. But the chances of them getting to you in time, especially with cold exposure, is pretty slim. Um, I guess it's a reality of the trip for me because it is something that I've, wanted to, like, I've always wanted to sail around Cape Horn, um, and then three years of planning for a trip like this, this is the most dangerous part of the trip, but once I'm clear of this, then it's just sailing, you know, then it's just dealing with the storm, so it's just taking your time, going slow, making sure you do it as safe as you can.
1: Plenty of clean underwear, too, by the sounds of things.
2: Hello? Uh, okay, that's... The... That's the joys of live satellite <laughs> phones. Hello to all our friends at Telstra. Um, <laughs> yes, it seems the line has dropped out. Uh, mate, can you just free dial her nice and see if we second. can get her back again? And that's going to happen, folks, because Lisa literally is in the middle of the ocean with nothing around her. So um, as you could hear from the first conversation, we're, uh, we're in the hands of the gods here. Yeah, hang on, here we go. Sorry about that. The phone just ran out.
1: Since when do satellites <laughs> drop out?
3: <laughs> well, I am in the middle of nowhere.
1: So <laughs> it's a Russian satellite. Damn
4: those Russians.
2: Fedor, Fedor, get your ass up there and fix this, Fedor. You
3: know who's talking to Brandon? He's the one that's got the shit for it.
1: <laughs> it's not the Russians. You know who's actually inv- who's doing it. It's Trump.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, he's looking do. after his Russian mates. Yeah. <laughs> you know my boat's called Climate Action Now, right? <laughs> exactly.
2: Now... Lisa, in hearing you talk about Cape Horn, and I'm just going to set, set the scene for people who are listening to the show. The The journey you are on, you intend to be the first woman to circumnavigate Antarctica, but as part of this, it's unaided. So you're not permitted to stop on land. There is no personal contact with any other person and you can't take assistance. Yet hearing you talk about the most dangerous waters in the world, the Everest of sailing, you almost sound like you're excited to get there. What's the mindset and how have you prepared yourself for what's ahead in the next couple of days? Yeah,
3: well, it, it, I mean, it's a monumental achievement to sail around the horn for any sailor. Doing it crude uh, is just as big as achievement as going solo. And for me, this is my first um, chance at sailing around the Horn and to do it on my own on a trip like this it's a pretty incredible experience and it's just so exciting I was hoping to have really nice mild conditions and be able to get close enough and take a photo but apparently I'm going to have a storm instead so uh, it will be quite nasty and quite rough and I just have to make sure that I'm prepared as much as I can and I use all the storm strategies that I know and that the boat's set up for um, to safely sail around, and, and that's the end game is just staying safe. Uh, with all of this trip, while there's records on the line and and there's two different records that I'm going for, my whole focus is simply sail safe because if I don't finish the trip, I get nothing anyway. So, um, yeah, there's plenty of things we're doing to to just make sure that that's, oh, that's the case.
2: Lisa, being out there by yourself, what have been the emotional high highs and the really emotional low lows. Can you can you talk me through the highs and lows you've been through emotionally?
3: Yeah, it's interesting, hey, because I've done other solo sailing trips and I raced to New Zealand and back in a little yacht um, solo as my first solo offshore trip. And because I was racing and it was a shorter trip, I pushed really, really hard and I had really extreme fatigue levels. And my emotions were skyrocketing up and down all over the place. Within a three-hour period of time, I would have been in tears a dozen times and laughing my head off a dozen times. Um, like, it's all over the shop. But this trip, because of the longevity of the trip, I've really been focusing on trying to make sure that I stay rested, that I'm not pushing too hard, that I'm not pushing the boat too hard. I'm at sea for three months straight unaided. So if anything breaks, I've got to be able to fix it. And I've got to be ready for every scenario. So it's really changed how those highs and lows affect me from other trips that I've done. And I found, like, I do have highs and lows, but they haven't been anywhere near as extreme as something like that last solo trip I did. Um, But, yeah, some of the highs, just laughing. (laughs) <laughs> for no real apparent reason something will just completely entertain me and I'll just burst into laughter and other times I'll just feel really calm
1: <laughs> Sounds like a
2: normal day for me <laughs> I uh, Don't bring up the catamaran again. Let's bring you flashbacks to the catamaran, the emotional highs and the low lows of catamaran <laughs>
1: sailing. Um,
3: yeah, you know, the low when your mask was dug into the mud.
1: That's right, exactly. That <laughs> was the low <laughs> low. Tell you what. <laughs> oh, she's, she's got you pegged,
2: buddy. I know. Um, Lisa, this is uh, an extraordinary thing you're doing. What what has this, th- so far, you, you, you're halfway through this whole thing. About to, to summit Everest, what have you learned about yourself so far? Like what, when you reflect back on your journal tonight so far and you're out there drifting, cruising along, what What has Lisa learned about herself this far into it? Um,
3: that's an interesting question because I, yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> um, All right. time I need to not leave the DVDs behind that were on my hard drive.
4: <laughs>
3: um, yes. Yeah more entertainment next time. Um, I learned, I don't know, I've always been really good with entertaining myself and being on my own. I've never really felt lonely um, and I haven't felt lonely through this trip either and I think modern technology assists that given, you know, things like us having a good conversation help but I have felt days where I would have loved to have had people around me or be able to share experiences with people but there's no one else here. Um so I guess I've learnt that whilst I am a bit of a loner, I do actually really like hanging out with people. And as I've said to a few people, when I get back um, from this trip, I'm probably going to move into one of those really large share houses with lots and lots of people. <laughs> but I've got company around me all the time for a period of time. <laughs> Regular conversations, you know.
2: <laughs> what was the dream, Lisa? Like how far back did this start in your mind? I mean, you You're an adventurer. You're a sailor and you certainly are chasing one hell of an adventure right now. Where did all this adventure stuff start? What was the dream? Do you remember a journey through, like, where it started, the journey you've been on, and what could you see in your mind that would lead you to today?
3: It's interesting, hey, because if you have asked me when I left high school what I wanted to do, sailing or adventuring was never on the cards. I actually went and did five years at university. Um, before I even discovered sailing. So I learned to sail when I was um, 23 and just fell in love with it. And it's just sort of grown from there. I've been given some amazing opportunities to do ocean crossings and, and cruising with friends. And um, from that, I decided I wanted to do more of it. And it's just sort of kept growing and growing. And I sailed around the world in a yacht race that's crewed, uh, which is like this amateur yacht race. And um, when I came back from that, I was like, <clears throat> what else could I do? A couple of years ago, I never even knew I could sail and I've just circumnavigated the world. What else is possible? And it, and it just all sort of fell up from there. Is that
2: something you think of quite often? You know, what else is possible? What else could I do?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've always, I guess with anything I've tackled in life, I've always sort of tried my best or done something quite big that's challenging to me. Um, Even in university, I did visual arts, my art shows, I'd spend, you know, over 12 months developing the concepts and and making the art, Um, so it is, I guess, a trait of mine to do that and this is no different, it's something I'm passionate about and I want to see where I can push myself and what my limits are and and what I can achieve and I've just surprised myself with what I have achieved already Um, and just because I'm on this trip doesn't mean this trip's the final stop. Uh, there will be plenty more of adventures after this now. I've got a little taste of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's just all sort of developed from
2: there. It must have been an expensive thing, three years in the planning. It must have been an expensive journey or expensive adventure you're on. How how did you go about funding this? Just I won't hold you up because I know you got stuff to concentrate on, but how, just for anybody listening who has their own dream like this, how did you go about funding your, your journey? Yeah, I
3: mean, it's... Raising the money is probably, well, what I've always said to people, it's the hardest part of the trip. And it is still, I would consider that the hardest part of the trip, even having sailed halfway across the world now on my own. Um, And it's it's hugely challenging because, well, for me especially, I don't have any corporate network or or connections. I had to build all of that and build the relationships and, and meet the right people and start the conversations. And it took a long time. Um, And that's largely why it took me three years of planning was because most of that time was trying to get the money together. Um, And even still, I ended up doing major bank loans to help finance the boats. And, um, you know, you you do everything. If you really want it, you just have to give it everything you've got. And you've got to be out of or be willing to allow for sacrifices as well, because, you know, I wasn't a normal 25-year-old girl. I was, at home trying to write up my next sponsorship proposal and going to corporate meetings and, and doing that sort of stuff instead of going to the pub with my mates and having a beer. Um, so it, it does take a level of sacrifice and it does take that dedication. And, and the biggest thing I noticed is persistence. You've just got to persevere with it. If you give up, no one else is going to make you do it. So you've just got to keep going. Have
2: you picked up any sponsors? I mean, are, are there specific sponsors who are helping you in a big way with this, Lisa?
3: Yeah, there are. And in fact, one of the most influential was Big um, Smith. He also sponsored Zedol Konyakov. Um, oh, wow. He's been Dedo. an incredible mentor and support for me with Dick Smith Foods. <laughs> um, and then we've got Bora Marina's, uh, the Carbon Reduction Institute, B&G, Zyke. There's so many brands. And in fact, what I was really happy with was, or impressed with was how many, um, how much in-kind support I got from small businesses in the sailing industry as well. When I refitted my boat, all these businesses and the network in Sydney came together and all donated so much of the equipment that I needed to make the boat safe and ready to go. Um, so that was really useful.
1: Dick Smith is the most amazing person just of, in and of himself, isn't he? I, I remember meeting him when I was heaps younger. Um, in fact, I was still living at home, and I remember even back then looking at him going, wow, you know, you just... An amazing person. I think he just finished his solo helicopter flight or whatever um, around the world.
3: Yeah, yeah, and he's so underassuming and he's just, you know, he's your average Joe Blow who just wants to help people and I was very, very fortunate that he saw what I was doing and was impressed enough with what I was doing to get behind me in a big way. Um, and, you know, he's helped me a lot. So, yeah, really impressed with him.
2: Big shout-out to Dick. Dicko, the Dickinator, the Dickster? The Dickinator. the Dickinator. The Dickinator. Big shout out to the Dickinator. So thank you, Dick Smith, for uh, helping. He's a big fan of the show. We've got, we've got, we've got a few dicks, listen. Uh, <laughs> got a couple
1: of dicks hosting as well.
2: <laughs> well you, oh God, too many lines. i gotta, I got to pull it up. Um, Lisa, that's great. So big shout out to Dick Smith. And uh, it is great Australians like that who are helping somebody else achieve their dream. I've, I've got so much admiration for people like that who do it. As you say, quite unassumingly. So um, you've got a great journey in front of you. We'd love to catch up with you once you've finished this circumnavigation, if we can, yeah, Lisa. So where are you based? Are you Because you left from WA. Yes,
3: yeah, so the record was um, Albany to Albany because that's where Fedor left from. But I'm based in Sydney at the moment, so I'll be sailing the boat eventually back
2: to Sydney after the record. Yeah, we'd like to catch up with you when you get back just to talk through because I've got so much... I'd like to delve into, but we're, we're mindful of your time, but it's, it's just such an extraordinary story. And when I heard that you, you can't stop on land, you can't have a contact with anybody or any assistance. It just makes it all the more awe-inspiring with where you're going. And I've got to say that whole Cape Horn thing that you are very excited about sounds just mind-blowing and awesome. And we, uh, we wish you every bit of luck and, absolutely. Um, We'll be following your journey and uh, look forward to celebrating when you get back.
3: Thank you. Yeah, no, it's going to be awesome. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you guys when I get back.
2: Now, how do people follow you? Um, how, do, how do people keep in touch with your journey? Where would you send them to, Lisa?
3: Yeah, so I've got a website with a live tracker and I'm doing daily blogs and everything. So you can follow that online. Um, it's Lisa Blair com. Uh, and there's the official timekeeper up there and, yeah, and, the, and a bit of the history and photos of the boat
2: and everything. And, uh, Rubber, if people are interested in your catamaran experiences, where where we send them? Maybe you can just
1: check out my <laughs> Facebook page for that one. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You got a photo of it.
1: I I've, uh, I've actually got a, got a photo of my mother's face <laughs> um, when she realised I was so stuck bad. in the middle of the lake. <laughs> I
2: just can't believe in the middle of someone who's circumnavigating the hardest piece of water in the world, you bring up your camera and getting stuck in the mud. I was using it as a oh, reference, God. okay? God. I'm so sorry, Lisa. We're just underplaying your
1: achievement. It's just so It's embarrassing. It's,
3: it's, it's so, Right. That was
1: the well, it's just a, it's just a big uh, lake, right? I mean, it's all water. Let's be honest. No, it's just
2: I've, I've allowed him. I've allowed him too many Tim Tams, and he's <laughs> he's had one too many. No, I'm man actually on coffees. the revies this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness, hello lot of our friends at Tim Tams and Corona. Um, uh, indeed. Lisa, thank you. Good luck. We'll keep in touch.
3: Yes, thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.
2: Stay safe. Good on you. Yeah. ya. Hey, I'm Chuck McCarthy, the people walker.
1: I walk a lot of miles, and one thing that keeps me going is the Mojo radio show.
3: One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. Hey,
1: guys Do you think we should have played at this?
4: I just
2: That is so cliche. After 30 years in radio and audio production, that's the best. You know what? (laughs) If if I was doing it and I have no experience, this is what I would have
1: played. Right, and you want to talk to me about cliches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's going to hear this back at some
2: point and go, who yeah. were those two idiots Those two in from yeah, the exactly. middle of the Antarctic Ocean?
1: Anyway. You know what times. is going to happen? You're going to ring her and say, can we catch up now you're back? And she's going to go, no. <laughs> <laughs> she, she won't even answer the phone. She'll see the number <laughs> yeah. and go, answering machine. Yeah, maybe bring from your home number, mate. Yeah. And one last thing before we
2: sign off from the ice caps of the Antarctica. Uh, mm. Last week it was International Women's Week. Yes. And uh, typical as a bunch of males, we are late.
1: <laughs> but we, our intentions are good.
2: <laughs> but this is our intention is to say to all our sisters, uh, happy International Women's Week. But yeah. I find it odd, you know, I, when we have guests on the show or I work with a leader when I'm doing a speaking job or a consulting job, it never even occurs to me that they're a male or a female or it's just if you can do the job, you can do the job. If you're getting after it, you are. If you're being of service, you are. And as much as I appreciate International Women's Week, I just go, well, it should be International
1: Everyone's Week because to me, if you're getting after it, you're getting after it. Don't you reckon? Absolutely. And, and can I just say too, just from as an audio engineer of some 30 years experience, I've actually found that women make better audio engineers than men if you really want to get down to it because they, their sense of detail and their attention to detail is much more refined. And I've, I've met a lot of audio engineers who are women who outstripped blokes by leaps and bounds. We had some great
2: audio engineers who, were ladies, back in the day of the M's and yeah. Today FM network. Do you remember Tess the-
1: Trimboli? I do remember Tess very well actually. <laughs> with the bandana. The bandana around the arm. Absolutely. She listens to the show, and I kid you not. Is that right? She does indeed. She lives in um, she lives in America now, but yeah, big listener of the
2: Happy show. Happy International Women's Week, Tess. Love your work, love your bandana.
4: Bye how green.
2: I have a dream.
0: The, dream the, the Mojo Radio Show.
2: Now, Robbo, I've got a little story for you before we start. So sit back, get your caveman coffee, MCT oil, get your, put, put down your revies, grab go Tim Tam.
1: Hang on, let me put on uh, some appropriate music. Hang on. All right, way you go. So
2: I was doing a speaking gig in Sydney recently for, and I've got to say, this is I'm not getting paid for this, a wonderful company called M&J Chickens. And when I started, the CEO said to me, you know what, chicken people are the best people in the world. And having spent the morning with them talking about their culture, their dreams, their mojo, I've got to say they were the most brilliant, fantastic group of people. And it just, it's it's a wonderful company. However, I was finished and I was about to leave the room and this guy called Eddie came up and introduced himself to me and Eddie works at m and Chickens and his story was absolutely extraordinary and it took him a few minutes to tell me the story and I stood there smiling at him and going mate that is absolute gold you've got to come on the Mojo Radio Show to tell your story. So we have him on the line thankfully to share this wonderful story. Eddie welcome to the Mojo Radio Show mate. Thank you. I have so been looking forward to sharing your story with Our audience. So, what I'm gonna do to set this up, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you back, Eddie, to the days where you were a chef at the Savoy on the Strand in London. And you would walk along the strand each morning on your way to work at the Savoy. Can you can you take us back to that time and take us through that story?
5: Absolutely. I was this bright-eyed young chef who traveled down from Nottingham in the Midlands where I was born and brought up, and I'd managed to get this job in the Savoy in London. I thought, wow, this is great. What a pinnacle in my career. I'm working at the Savoy. It was freezing cold most mornings getting to work. I was living in Kent and I'd get on the train at 30 in the morning, get up at Charing Cross Station, walk around the corner and walk past Australia House and I look at this all these bright advertisements about sunny Australia and beaches and bronzed people and all these handsome guys and women with hardly anything on I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I wish I could go there. I'd love to live in Australia. I would love that place. Nothing about it whatsoever. Got into the kitchens, slaved away. I finished work, walked past that sign again, Australia House, other country, Sydney, Melbourne. I thought, wow, I'd love to live there. And then an opportunity came along. An opportunity came along to work on a cruise ship on board the Canberra. So I applied. And uh, fortunately, on, with uh, with some of the background and that I had, I think those slaving away at the, in the dungeons of the Savoy had, uh, had helped some way along the way. And I managed to get a job, and we sailed all around the world. And I was thinking of some exciting country to take my skills to one day. And I was thinking, I was thinking the Americas, maybe Bermuda, or whatever it was. And anyway, one day, one balmy February morning in 1987, the Canberra sailed into Sydney. It was not on my mind at the time. Not on my. I, in fact, I didn't even think back to the Savoy at the time in those cold mornings. But at some stage, it clicked, and it was so warm that morning. It would have been about twenty-eight or thirty degrees in February, as it regularly is right now. And we we ran around. My chef friends and I ran around Sydney like headless chickens, trying to cram as much as we could do into that one day that we were in, in Sydney. And we were still at the top of Sydney Centre Point Tower. And I stood there, and it was then that I realised and remembered. Australia house. And I stood next to my friend, Jim, and I said, you know what, Jim? I'm going to come and live here. He went, you sure? I said, yeah, I'm going to live in Australia. This is a country for me. Look at it. It's just beautiful. Jumped on back on board the Canberra, and uh, I actually went back to London, not back to the Savoy again, but very close to it, around the corner, a hotel called the Meridian. Carried on working, and I applied to migrate to Australia. Four months later, my passport came back, with stamp in it, I was resident and I could go to Australia and shoot off there whenever I wanted to. And so I uh, up, packed up my bags on the 20th of January, 1989, and I migrated to Australia.
2: I love that <laughs> because I think I, I like the idea of having a dream and then putting pen to paper and chasing it. Yeah. But the other thing I like about it is that yeah, I think Eddie. Some people have these dreams in the back of their mind, and they dream it. Then they forget about it. Yes. And it's not until we're reminded of a dream we had when we were a child, or when we were at high school, very, or there very was true. there was yeah, there was this thing in the back of our mind. And one of the things I said to Robbo when I wanted to get you on the show was that quite often when I'm speaking, people say, "Well, how do you know it's a real dream?" And to me. It's a real dream when it keeps gnawing at you, like it doesn't go away, and it keeps. Oh, very true. It keeps coming up in your mind for whatever reason. There's some trigger, and the second part of your story, which I just love, is <laughs> you arrive, you get into a taxi, <laughs> yes. and you ask the taxi driver to take you somewhere.
5: That's Pick right. That up from there, mate. I remember this day was one one of the things I'll never forget.
2: So I jump into a cab
5: after looking around at jobs and wanting to work somewhere really nice. So I said to this taxi driver, what's the best hotel in Sydney? And he looked at me and said, it's the Regent, mate, the Regent, cost a fortune. You know an arm on my leg, an arm and a leg. <laughs> anyway, so he dropped me to the Regent Hotel and, and I walked in there, you know, young 27-year-old lad and with a bit of experience behind him and I walked in there with a bit of a swagger into the Regent and... In that year of 89, the Regent Hotel had just been voted the sixth best hotel in the world. And so he had, it had everything going for it. And I thought, that's just for me. So I walked in there, a bit of a swagger. Said, can I see the chef, please? I said, yes, I've come to apply for a job. And this chef came out. And I'd read about him, surged answer And he was, you know, to me, he was six foot tall and wide. Wow, this guy was great. He wasn't that in stature. But, you know, in, in terms of of, of uh, what he did and what had, we, he was doing in in the catering field, he was great. So I said, look, chef, you know, I've worked on the Canberra and I've, I've, I've worked at the Savoy and I've worked at the Meridian and I've done all these things and uh, I'd love to get a job here, you know. He said, oh, really? He said, okay, made me an omelette. I said, I beg your pardon, chef. He said, made me an omelette. I said, chef, um, do you mind having another look at my resume? You know, I've sort of worked at the Savoy and I've worked at the Canberra and I've worked in all these fine places. Surely you want me to do... More than an omelette, maybe cheddar brown, maybe or something with red wine and maybe an omelette. I was like, geez, what is this like, guy doing? Anyway, so I got the pan on and I heated the pan and I cracked my three eggs and I beat the eggs and got my garnishes ready and made this nice little, nice little book folder of an omelette and put in front of him. And he looked at it and just looked at me and said, "Okay, start on Monday." <coughs> well, thank you, chef. Anything else? No, that'll do. And I got into the Regent on Monday and uh, I started working, had my induction with Mr Ted Wright, another famous GM from the, the uh, that was well-known from the Regent at the time. And after the induction, I started working slave-like hours at the Regent for about a year or so. And it was magnificent. And it taught me a tremendous amount. And then I followed another very, very good chef from the Regent who then on, went on to become the executive chef of Australian Airlines and I left the Regent and did exactly the same thing, went on to become the executive chef of Australian Airlines.
2: So a year later, you spoke to Chef Sears. Yes. And you said, <laughs> why the omelette? Yes. What did he say? What did he say about that?
5: Yeah, he said, I wanted to see how you organised some of the simple things. If you had not warmed your plate, heated the pan, beat the eggs and seasoned it, you wouldn't have been working here. But I like the way you put it together for me and you did it just right. And then you push it towards me and you said, I finished, chef. People never spoke much about that. And I, it was a test of just my organisational skills. If you can get the basic things right, you can get some of the more complex things. You'll, you'll be able to tackle some of the more complex things in the kitchen as well. And uh, I still laugh. I still laugh at that, that day. But what he didn't know, what chef did not know, is that whilst working on the camera, and often those breakfast shifts I worked on, I used to make about 400 omelets a day. I didn't disclose that until the later. <laughs> so making omelets was something I was pretty good at.
2: But Robbo, what's what's cool about this is the Regent Hotel, I mean, at that time, going back into the 80s, the Regent Hotel was the go-to rock and roll spot in Sydney and they That's owned so their own really. Rolls Royce, which they used yeah. to dispatch to the airport to pick up customers. Really? And- oh, really? Really? and And they've been known to fly in Valencia oranges from California every week rather than use the oranges from their local produce because at the time <laughs> local produce wasn't the go, but that's that's no. the extent. And he had like i think at at the time chef Den, which is the yeah.
4: French word he, uh,
2: <laughs> he he had a hundred chefs in the kitchen. so you're talking about. You know, a place that was pumping, and I—I I like your swagger and your backbone to walk in and go. <laughs> you know what? My dream—I want to work here. This is where I want to work. And then the simplicity of doing yeah,
5: it—and that, that's really what got me. I thought of all the things that was going to ask me to do after you know doing all the things I'd done at various establishments before the Savoy. He took—he took me back to being the, the basics. You know, and I wanted to I wanted to work in the best. And I thought to myself, how do I get into this place? I thought, well, I'll just present myself. I don't know what I would have done if the turned around and said no to me. But in my mind, I thought, no, I'm going to tackle this place. I wanted to work in somewhere that was really fine. And I, I don't know what made me ask a
2: taxi driver,
5: but I thought, well, if anyone's going to know, the cab driver going to know which the best hotel was
2: to work in. But that's another part of chasing your dreams. When you say, yes. I don't know what I would have done... It's mm. if you've got a fallback plan, then it means you're planning to fall back. When yes. you've got a dream, you've just got to go 100% at it and not think about the consequences because you've got to keep your eye on the ball. It's such it's such a great story, yeah. you know, and I just I just love the fact that you and I met over a coffee
1: table and we had this <laughs> conversation. But did you, Gary? Did you just happen to meet? Because as I understand it, the third part of Eddie's dream was that he wanted to be on the Mojo radio show.
2: I, oh, I, didn't want, I did want you to just mean? that. I didn't want to disclose that. But I do I do want to share that Eddie specifically flew back from Hong Kong to yes. get to Sydney in time for the recording. And that actually is a fact. And that's very humbling, so, uh, can I just say? Oh, uh, very humbling. Now you just we should give a, a plug to your uh, your employer of choice yes. now. Uh, you work at MJ Chickens and you've flown back from Hong Kong because these guys are globally growing as a chicken organization. Uh, what are you doing now, Eddie? What's your. What's your gig yeah, there? well,
5: I, I'm the group um, chef uh, for MJ Chickens, and what I do is I develop all the new products that MJ Chicken has and uh, serves to supplies to all its clients. Uh, I set up all the export work in terms of. Uh, Exporting our products to Hong Kong, where I've just come back from, to Dubai, where we supply produce. We're into Singapore, where we supply produce out there too, and also to Macau. And uh, we 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 tackle all sorts of clients, from large casinos to restaurant groups to quick service restaurants. And I go there and I talk about different flavour profiles and different types of foods and use up some of these experiences from the Canberra and from the Regent and from the Riddin and all the other places. And you put it all together and you go right. I think I can help you with some of your solutions in terms of your your, your menu requirements, your food test requirements and what you're going to, to serve some of your guests.
2: Actually, Robbo, you might know M&J Chickens because they are on the Jersey for the Australian Rugby League That's team, right. the Canterbury Bulldogs. Did you know that? Absolutely. I
1: didn't know that, but I do now. There you go. There you go, mate. Go doggies. <laughs> yeah, well, the only thing the good years. about the Bulldogs is their coach and he came from Manly, so that says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> there,
2: there you go. Um, Eddie, this has been great. I I met Eddie's CEO, Sam, who runs M&J Chickens, and it really is, i got to say, it's a wonderful culture. A wonderful group of people, and as Sam said to me the first time he met me, he said, "Mate, chicken people are the best people in the world." <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm going to say, after spending time speaking to them as an audience and meeting Eddie with a brew and hearing the stories, and Michael and Sam and Andrew and all the team over there, it's a, it's a great organisation. We are not Thank being you. paid, sadly. We're not
4: being paid. <laughs> no,
2: So, mate, thank you for your time. Thank you for making the effort to get back from Hong Kong to be on our show and uh, keep chasing your dreams, brother. Yeah, thanks,
5: mate. Absolutely. It really works. You know, in those cold days walking past the Australia house, that was that subliminal message back there and I wanted to get there somehow and somehow it is. Chase your dream. It really works.
1: The Mojo Radio Show. That is a very cool story, isn't it? That's everything we talk about encapsulated in 10 minutes.
2: It is, and the, the takeouts for me,
1: and we spoke about this when I first
2: met Eddie at the M&J Chickens gig, is I just love the fact, because people quite often say, how do I know my dream's a real dream? And I'd say if it gnaws at you day after day, week after week, or you look back some years later and that dream is still gnawing at you unfinished, it's unfinished business. And Eddie walking past the, the Australian consulate Day after day, it just gnawed at him. And then one day, standing on the top of Centre Point, looking out, and going, "I've got to do something about this." That's the first lesson I took. And then I'm, I quite, I really, I'm inspired by the guy because he then got back on board the ship and took the first step. So he broke it down to what's the first thing I can do? Write a letter. Done. Tick. Moved on. Got after it. The second thing I love about it is Serge, who really you mentioned anyone in the culinary world in Australia, Serge is seen to be up there with the great celebrity famous chefs in Australia. Mm. For him to have the courage to start at the top, set the standard, walk in and say, I want to work here. And I remember Marco Pierre White, who is one of the world's great celebrity chefs. He once said the last thing that a master learns is simplicity. And Serge going, make me an omelette, just shows if you break down <laughs> the world's best, into the most simplistic things is if you can make me a great omelette, the most simplistic form of like a brekkie, I'll know from the way you do it whether you are the right person to work here. he did it, he brought it. He got the gig, and uh, to this day, he's still living his dream. I just think it's fantastic. I love the guy. It's great, isn't it? I love it. So uh, we're done. Great show. A biggie. Mm, and uh, what are we going to play out with? What's the what's the go? Well,
1: I reckon the theme through this week's show has definitely been dreams. You'd have to say that, right? So I'm thinking a couple of weeks ago, we had a bit of hot for Tito. I reckon this, this week we've got to go to Van Halen again, but we've got to play a bit of dreams, don't we? Nice. We're out.
0: Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.